0: All right, everybody, make your way back over. It's time for us to get started with our teaching. If you don't have a Bible as you make your way back over, you can grab one on the coffee house. We're going to be on page 887 in that Bible. Before we get into the sermon, I'd like to just kind of make a few remarks about a variety of things. Let me start with my shirt. I've been asked like 30 times already, what does "oot" mean? Um, Let's see, Jillian, are you in here? No? Okay, well... Our whole youth group is out right now, both Jillian and Josie, but Oot means Oikos on Tuesdays, and that's the day that several of us meet for discipleship and community with our youth group. It's, it's become a really special time in our week. Um, I was going to have Jillian pronounce Oot the way she does. <laughs> okay. Uh, we're really proud of those girls and what the Lord is doing in their lives. Uh, there's a couple other groups that are also meeting that you can be aware of. If you're in college or college age, we have a weekly college discipleship group that meets on Wednesdays, and I don't think they're doing ooh or anything like that, but if you're in ew. okay. Um, but one of the most important calendar things that you need to remember for next week is that next week we're doing in-home worship. And this is actually something, if this is your first time here, you may have never seen an intermission in an assembly before, but intermissions, are we're, we're great with that. Everybody wants to get up anyway, This get a chance to get a cup of coffee and come back. But we also do another thing that's a little odd. On the first Sunday of every month, we kind of move worship into homes and into neighborhoods. And so all our groups will be hosting a, many worship gatherings around the city. But if you forget next week and you're like, I'm not in a group, what do I do? Just know that we're going to have one of those groups host here. And so you can come at 10 o'clock and there's going to be brunch. It'll be more than donut holes. It'll be a really great time. You'll still worship. You'll still sing. You'll still share the table together. But it'll just kind of be a more intimate setting, a smaller group. Um, I'll talk more about that in just a second. But there's, there's a couple other notes in the bulletin. You can check those out if, if you're kind of curious about what's going on in a given week here. Um, but in the last week... Maybe, maybe on Friday, you were kind of struck Friday morning with this big news of the decision from the Supreme Court to really overturn Roe versus Wade, the 1973 decision, and the Casey case that happened in the early 90s. And I've been trying to process that. It, it felt like a momentous occasion. It, it felt kind of like a wait. I was like, okay. Uh, particularly as somebody who's in community with a people that I, I love dearly, that are on very different kind of sides and how their emotional response is is to that that day. How do we talk about this? How do we make sense of How do we keep practicing love and unity in, in the midst of this? Somebody made a really good illustration I want to pass along. They said a lot of our like social services are kind of like a Jenga tower. You've played Jenga, right? Where you, you pull out things, and you put in things and it's kind of a competition. But what happens when you pull out a block on Jenga is that it actually puts more pressure on everything around it. And it actually makes everything else a little more fragile. And if you're not careful, when you pull it out with the right bump, the whole thing will collapse. And I think some of what's happening and some of the fear, it's, it's like that. It's like our social services are something like a Jenga tower and there's a massive block that was just pulled out and Personally, I celebrate, and I'll I'll talk about this in just a second, I celebrate the fact that there will be more children living in our state. But then I think, but what will happen to the extra pressure and the fragility of removing something so significant? And then my heart hurts for especially women who feel fear, they feel almost powerless, these decisions were made and then the fear is that now the decision of life is made without them. I feel both of those things very strongly. And not everybody here does feel those things strongly, I understand. Um, But I think there's room in this community for both celebrating life and for looking around saying, we got work to do. Because the system is now more fragile than ever and there's only 30 days in our state. There's only 30 days to get ready. So I know I'm, I'm going to preach. This is not the sermon, just so you know. Um, You've got more to come. Uh, can I go ahead and kind of say, I hope your table and your home are getting ready to, to, to care for especially vulnerable women right now. It, it may be very likely that the Lord puts a pregnant woman in your life. You may be that pregnant woman right now, and you may be feeling that fear. Um, You are welcome in my home. You have a place to stay. Uh, You are welcome at our table. You have food to eat for as long as it takes. Um, And I hope the Oikos community can kind of rise to that, that when those opportunities and open doors and the fragility and the burden come into our lives that we will be ready to answer. And perhaps that doesn't happen. Perhaps someone doesn't come into your life, but I guess I'm asking, can you bring that into your prayers? Um, this pursuit of justice in the name of Jesus is going to take on a different approach than the two-party political system that we're in today, and it's going to look more like the kingdom of God. So this week I've been really burdened. What, what is God thinking what would Jesus have to say to a community like this? And man, I wish I had the wisdom to know how to answer those things. Um, But I I tend to think that if our prayers are filled with praise and lament, we're at least mirroring the the people of God for thousands of years before us. And if our prayers are filled with desire for life, for children, and for life for mothers, I think we're we're on good ground here too. can I just say a quick prayer about this? Lord God, we humble ourselves before you as the king of the universe, the maker of heaven and earth, as the father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has conquered death and who is coming soon. And we humble before you because we don't, I don't fully know how to kind of step out right now. Um, with these changes, I celebrate life And with these changes, I'm worried and I'm fearful. Um, My heart is with people who are filled with joy. My heart is with people who are filled with pain. And so, Father, I pray that you in our community would enlarge our hearts and make room for unity. But more than unity, Father, I pray that you would make room for justice, justice through our hands and feet, justice through our homes and our tables. Um, Justice, if it be your will, Lord, give us the insight and the wisdom and the influence to, to do it at an even bigger scale. Um, Father, we want to see your name made famous, and we want to see the kingdom of God in Memphis as it is in heaven, and so give us the wisdom and the strength and the courage to walk that out together. This is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen. All right, now you're ready for a sermon. <laughs> uh, we're going to be in Luke chapter 7, page 887 in the, the Coffeehouse Bible. Uh, Let me start with just talking about our table. When I say our, I mean Kelsey. Kelsey, can you wave at everybody? Some of you don't know my family. You haven't been welcomed to my table. Um, I hope to fix that soon. Um, One of the things we like to do with new people is just get them in a home to experience Oikos. Because at Oikos, we want to experience the church's family. I think that's what church is. But it's not glamorous. Uh, I think it was Wednesday. It was just, and this isn't like an exceptional story. This is just a day. It was the day I wrote a sermon. But the night before, I I walked over to the table for dinner, and I just said to Kelsey, three for three. Three for three. We have three children. And each one of them took turns complaining about the food. Before I even sat down, and before Mom, who made the food, even sat down, and guys, it was not like broccoli and Brussels sprouts. It was corn dogs. (laughs) But this sarcastic comment from me then prompted One of our children uh, to have a breakdown. He, which narrows down which child, (laughs) he left the table and he was just bawling. He was uh, really upset. He said, "I did not complain about the food. All I said was the wiener is brown," (laughs) and I helped him say it. And and I said I would get used to it. And I was like. So I call him over and I take his hand, my my hands. I put them on his face and I apologize. I say, "Fletch, you're right. That was unfair. You didn't you didn't complain. You actually said that you would get used to it." <laughs> and so I apologize. And then, like Kelsey finally comes over. Um, you know, she's just been working in the kitchen, and now she sits down at the table and it's like, "All right, whose turn is it to pray?" It's Evie's turn. Evie says. Dear God, thank you for mama and daddy. Thank you for my brother and sister. Thank you for my school. Thank you for mama and daddy. Thank you for my brother and sister. Did I say thank you for mama? I was like, okay, this is, this is like a little glimpse into life in our home. And then the kids are giggling and they start kind of giving some suggestions for other things that she might want to pray about. And then, okay, amen, let's eat. At our table at um, we normally do highs and lows, and so we take turns asking questions. It's highs and lows, but mostly it's just noise, right? There's a lot of people saying lots of things. There's people like circling the table, sit down. Um, can eat your food, please? You need to eat all of that. Um, all right, did you all hear what she said? And then at some point I'm hearing about basketball camp and I'm hearing about swimming. I get 30 seconds to kind of hear what Kelsey has done that day. And then we're done eating. Whew. The kids take over the dishes, you know, there's clanging, there's stuff that drops on the floor. You know, it's like, thanks for cleaning up. Now the kitchen's a mess and the sink is full. And I'm telling you, this is not exceptional. This is just a day. It's like, why do we do this every day? (laughs) Let me tell that story from just another lens. Same, Same stuff happens, right? But there's an author that I really like. I've quoted him before. His name is Justin Early. Justin Early is not a pastor. He's not a scholar. Justin Early is an attorney um, who's trying to live a life of discipleship with his family in his context. He knows what it's like to be busy. He knows what it's like to have kids. And even though you may not have kids, I bet that you know what it's like to kind of live in a chaotic apartment or a dorm or just have noise and stuff. And for but what he says is that when you look at our lives, instead of looking at it our practical lens, he says look at it through a liturgical lens. David, thank you for doing the generosity of liturgy. He said liturgy is still pretty new for me. Can I give just kind of a definition of what liturgy is? Because it's a churchy word. He says that liturgy is a cadence of worship. You know what a cadence is? It's like a rhythm. It's a cadence of worship. It's a rhythm of religious activity. And it sounds very churchy, but the word liturgy doesn't always apply just to church stuff. Early says, he says, all of our unspoken values get hidden under the invisibility cloak of the ordinary. We think of our day-to-day routines as neutral simply because we see them so often. But our routines, he says, are more than ordinary. Our routines, our daily activities, the things we do over and over, he says, they're actually liturgy. One scholar and pastor, she calls them the liturgy of the ordinary. The normal, he says, is what shapes us the most. Though we notice it the least. He says, I used to think I needed to get through the day to day stuff, get those out of the way so that I could start focusing on the really spiritual work. But now I see that God's grace abounds in the places I need it most, in the normal routines. He says, The fact is, in my family, if you're adverse to messy prayers, then you're adverse to prayer. If you can't tolerate spills, then you'll avoid eating with children. If you don't like conflict in relationships, then you're not going to like relationship. If you can't handle a mess in the kitchen, you can't handle hospitality. If you can't stomach awkward moments, you won't much like the conversation that leads to the great moments. And if you have trouble with fights, then you won't be much good at forgiveness. Seeing with the liturgical lens expands our field of vision to see that spiritually significant work of the household is not happening in spite of the mess, but because of it, and so he says, all these studies are saying that the meal is important. You know, the study on road Scholars. What's the one thing road Scholars have in common? They ate as a family. Numerous studies link it to good social outcomes, good family outcomes, good academic outcomes. But I believe it's also linked to good spiritual outcomes. The Barnes study in... Don Everts, uh, his book, The Spiritually Vibrant Home, he says spiritually vibrant families had one thing in common in the studies, loud tables. Gives me hope, (laughs) Kills. So when I look at my table on just a Wednesday, through that lens, here's some things I notice. The fact that we have dinner reminds everybody in our home that we have a priority to one another. As we pray, we remember that every good and perfect gift comes from God, mama and daddy and mama and daddy and and mama. We are reminded about gratefulness. We remember not everyone has a family of love to sit at a table with. Not everyone has a table of food to be filled up with. We correct. We push back on complaining to help cultivate and resist, really resist entitlement and to grow resiliency. We practice asking questions because we want to train for listening. The simple questions of highs and lows, they they give these short updates, but what they're doing, what we're trying to do is introduce practices of spiritually reflecting on what God is doing in our days and in our lives. We apologize, we forgive, we clean up, we help, and the time and effort remind us of the value of relationships and the value of love because they aren't easy. Early says, behold then, the way a noisy dinner table echoes with the gospel, light from darkness, Prayers from the mouths of babes, forgiveness and gratefulness, reconciliation and discipline, but none of it is sanctimonious, and all of it real liturgy. Today I want to invite you to this rhythm of life called Eat Together. It's what we're doing in this series. The series is on the transforming graces, and the graces is just a simple acronym to kind of help us in, in this Oikos community remember what it looks like to practice the way of Jesus. To live the way of Jesus, it looks like giving thanks and reflecting on the word. It looks like asking deeper questions, communing with God. And today we're going to explore what it looks like to eat together. And guys, I know you know this. I've talked about it all the time. But Jesus is constantly eating together with people. And that's what we're going to kind of dive in and look at today. Being a disciple of Jesus means you, you practice two big things. You practice being with Jesus and you practice doing what Jesus did. And I believe that at the table, we can be with Jesus, and at our tables, we can do what he did. Let's dive into this this practice, although I think some of you are like, eat together. You know, I've never known that I was called into ministry, but I'm feeling a call. This is my spiritual gift, actually. But others of you may be thinking, eat together, when will I have time to do that? Because I think... If eat together can be a rhythm of life, a lot of us can look at our calendars and think, well, I'm a little out of rhythm here. Did you know that the business lunch was at a 45-year low before COVID? Families, it says there's been a 33% decline in families eating together. And now most of family dinners, there's a a screen on. There's, There's at least a phone or a TV. Eating together seems like this almost lost art or at least a lost discipline. In, in bowling alone, you hear the name, bowling alone. Robert Putnam, he's a sociologist. He says that there's this massive decrease in families eating together over the last three decades. And he says over that, that period, there's also been a 45% decline in entertaining friends. We're not doing it at work, we're not doing it with our families, we're not doing it with our friends. For most of us, this has been replaced by other things because we don't have time for this anymore hospitality has been commercialized as we've seen like the rise of the third space you know what i mean by third space it's like when you go to a coffee shop or to starbucks it's like finally here's a place where i can sit down with somebody but just last year in the atlantic the atlantic basically said starbucks is pivoting away from the third space the vast majority of starbucks sales are drive-through and pickup they're creating now stores not with third space in mentality but with robots who hand out the drinks, there's no actual human interaction that's even happening like in their big Manhattan store. You see, it's, it's disappearing from, from our lives. And that's not to mention the impact of COVID. Now even fast food feels like a drive-thru or pickup. I went into my first Chick-fil-A in two years a couple of weeks ago. I was like, they, they let us in? They let us in here? Chester, though, in his book, A Meal with Jesus, he says that hospitality can have a dark side is not only it's out of rhythm here, but hospitality can have a dark side. Southern hospitality can easily have connotations that make us cringe. The niceties, the putting on of appearances, the lack of authenticity, the formality, but perhaps most troubling of all, the exclusion of Southern hospitality. But I know who I'm talking to today. I'm talking to Christian people who are part of a church plant where we're constantly eating together. And you may be thinking, that's what I thought six months ago, but now that I've been a part of this community, I have come to really see the value of eating together. I was talking with one couple here who's thinking about redesigning the layout of their home just to make room for a larger table. And I was like, yeah, that's, that's kind of this Oikos influence. And so the tension here is a little different than it is in most churches. The tension here is like, well, I'm eating together with people all the time, but I wish I could eat with everybody. It's like, how can I embrace the limited number of people that fit around my table or the limited number of people in my Oikos group? How can I experience community around a table? I think one of the tensions here is that we're all at tables, but we're all at tables with Christian people, and so there's very little time for non Christians or for outsiders or for people from work because we're so filled up with people from Oikos. I I feel that. Kelsey and I are trying to intentionally look at our calendar, how we're sharing our table. So it's about who is there, but it's also about who isn't there. But eating is a spiritual practice. Eating together is a discipline in the way of Jesus. Eating together is discipleship. And so let's look at Luke 7. All right, in Luke 7, Jesus has this phrase, the Son of Man came blank. And now we already had scripture reading, so you already know what this phrase is. That's not fair. Because if I said fill in the blank with most Christian people, and said, there's three times this phrase shows up in scripture, the son of man came blank. Or if I just said, what do you think? How did the son of man come? The son of man came preaching the word. The son of man came establishing the kingdom. The son of man came to die on the cross. Or if you really knew your Bible, you would say the son of man came to seek and save the lost. The son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. But there's those two Ways the Bible talks about this are statements of purpose. The Son of Man came, yes, to die. The Son of Man came, yes, to give his life a ransom for many. But the third time this shows up, it says, The Son of Man came, it's not a statement of purpose, it's a statement of method. How did he come? The Son of Man came eating and drinking. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. It's his method. Son of Man in the book of Daniel. It's this title for the really powerful king who's going to come and judge all the world, and he's going to take his throne. He's going to be ruler of heaven and earth. It's this awesome kind of authoritative, majestic status. But How does the Son of Man come? Chester says, how does he come? Does he come with an army of angels? Does he come on the clouds of heaven? Does he come with a blaze of glory? No, the Son of Man comes eating and drinking. He comes eating and drinking, and our text says, because he came eating and drinking, you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, you know what a glutton is. A glutton is somebody who eats all the time, and a drunkard is somebody who's drinking all the time. The reason Jesus was accused of these things is because he was eating all the time and drinking all the time. You see, um, Chester, he calls him a party animal. I don't know if that's quite right, but... He says Jesus was seriously into eating and drinking, so much so that his enemies accused him of doing it to excess. That is least is fair. So how did Jesus get this reputation of being a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners? Well, if you just look in the Gospel of Luke, you see that Jesus is constantly eating with people. In Luke 5, it's the story of where he calls Levi, and then he has this party with tax collectors and sinners. In Luke 7, that's what we're going to look at, he goes to the home of Simon the Pharisee to eat with him. In Luke 9, Jesus is feeding the 5,000. Luke 10, as Michael alluded to, he's having a meal with Mary and Martha. Luke 11, Luke 14, Luke 19, Luke 22, even after Jesus is raised, he's eating with everybody he appears to. He's eating fish. He's eating bread. It's just Jesus is constantly eating and drinking. So that one commentator says in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. And when he's not at a meal, he's talking about banquets and dinners it, it's just so full of the ministry of Jesus. And because it's so full of the ministry of Jesus, that may be a little shocking to American Christians. But it, this was not shocking to Jewish people because Jewish people knew that the Messiah would come with a banquet. You see, in, in the story of God, beginning in Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3, food is really important. You remember Adam and Eve? It all turns on food. <laughs> it all turn, Cain and Abel, they're bringing these offerings from the field what they would have eaten, and from the flocks, what they would have eaten. It turns on food. The people of God, they celebrate the Passover and the salvation of God at the Exodus. And how do they remember? Well, they eat together, eat these bitter herbs, eat this whole lamb. The prophets, though, they say that one day when the Messiah comes, he's going to come and it's going to be a big banquet for all nations. Everybody's invited to this big banquet. There's going to be the best food and there's going to be the best wine. Amos says, that it's like the vineyard on the mountain is just going to roll down and it's going to pour out this fruit of the vine all over God's people. It's just this place of abundance. What will it look like when Messiah comes? It's going to be a party. It's gonna be, look, it will look like someone who's eating and drinking. And so when we see Jesus eating and drinking, this is, a, this is a nod to those who have ears to hear and eyes to see that he has come as the Messiah of God's people. And so it's no surprise then when he memorializes his death, as we just remembered, he takes bread and he takes the cup and he breaks it and he says, I want you to do this. He commissions his church, his people, not to sing every time you get together, not to preach every time you get together. He says, when you come together, eat. This is the practice of the way of God's people forever. Jesus' strategy for mission, his way of coming, was a long meal stretching into the evening. He did evangelism and discipleship around the table with some grilled fish, a loaf of bread, and a pitcher of wine. If you pull down books, and I recently did this, I took a class on evangelism, discipleship, and church planting. If you pull down all the books and what all the scholars are saying about all these techniques, ultimately when you look at Jesus, what you see is that he doesn't do it with the extraordinary. He does it with the ordinary. He does it with a table. He does it with a table. Jesus Is a glutton and a drunkard a friend of tax collectors and sinners? What we see here is that the table of Jesus shows us the way of hospitality. This is the way of the early church. We'll say more about that in just a minute. May this be the way of ministry in this church. The table of Jesus in our gathering, in our community, and for the mission of the world. The way of hospitality. That's the way of Jesus. That's how the kingdom of God comes. But who? Who is the who of Jesus' hospitality? Let's look where this text goes next. He says, then one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to dinner with him, and he went to the Pharisee's house, and he reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume." There's two big characters here. There's the first, the Pharisee. And then second, there's the woman who in town, it says, lived a sinful life in the NIV. But literally, it's, she was known as a sinner. What this means, commentators say, is that she's a prostitute. She's a well-known prostitute. It's not like she was falsely accused of prostitution. She's probably been the customer of some of the people at the dinner party, right? This is a weird gathering where there's a Pharisee and this woman. It's weird because Pharisees at this time drew extra lines around who could be invited to their table. And honestly, for good reason. Because in the Old Testament, in the people of God, there's this practice of eating with God at the temple. You eat with God at the temple. This is where you go make your sacrifice. The priest eats with God. You can commune with God around food, and you do it at the temple. But what happens when the temple's destroyed? What happens when you... How do you restore life with God? And the Pharisees said, well, the best way to restore life with God... Especially when we're living all around this empire, he says, we have to turn our altar our tables into the altar. What we need is holiness in our homes, just to the level of the holiness of priests. And the priests, they can't be around sinners. They can't be around Gentiles. And so maybe our homes and our tables shouldn't either maybe we should practice the level of cleanliness that the priests do so that the Lord will come back to his people. That's the thought process of the Pharisees who say, we can't have anything to do with tax collectors and sinners. We can't have anything to do with the outsider and the prostitute. So I think it can come from a good place, but what it ends up looking like is a social exclusion. But just to try to kind of bridge it from the first century into our century, can you just imagine this for a second? You can close your eyes imagine if you want. You hear the doorbell ring, but you think nothing of it. You're at a dinner party. There's some prominent church leaders, you know, elders and pastors. You see these very Christian people around. Ding dong. A woman pushes her way into the room, and then you see the despairing face of the host's wife. This new arrival is wearing a tight-fitting, low-cut blouse, a skirt that is way too short, and stiletto shoes. She's painted up to the nines, and totters slightly as she walks. She probably had one too many drinks. She looks like the sort of woman who stands on street corners. She goes straight to the visiting speaker, throws her arms around him, clasping his head to her bosom. She says, I will always be yours. She begins to massage his shoulders. It's then that you notice she's crying, her mascara streaking down her cheeks. Everyone in the room seems to freeze. What a thing for a respectable person to have to endure. You, you feel for him. How embarrassing. But instead of pushing her away, he reaches up and puts his arms around her. And he says something to her that sounds like, and you are mine. But he can't have said that. It's obvious what kind of woman she is. He can surely be that for himself. He ought to show some discernment. She might think it's a come on. Maybe it is. Maybe he's one of her customers. The visiting speaker clearly has big problems. Luke, he says, this is all from Tim Chester. He says, Luke tells us about a dinner party just like this. Table fellowship in the ancient world was a a sign of partnership. When you shared a table with somebody, it was a way of basically resembling and embodying a covenant. These are my people. These are the people under the blessing of this house. These are the, the people who share in this bread, share in the blessing that was broken over it before we shared together. So, table fellowship for a seeing a prostitute was unheard of. Almost more so than it would have been for us. Let me stretch that a little bit. I think because our cursor is pretty sexualized, we're not quite as put off by prostitutes. So, John Mark Comer, he's a pastor in Portland. He says, what if instead of prostitutes, we exchanged it for somebody else? He's like, we don't have tax collectors and prostitutes that really make us think, oh, no. He says, put it, put it in somebody else. Who's the worst sinner you can think of? The worst sinner you can think of? Is it a pedophile? Is it a white nationalist? You're like, if it's not those, they're at the top, right? They're, they're at least close. Can you imagine Jesus sharing the table with a pedophile? With a white nationalist? You're going to that meeting? That feeling in your gut? (laughs) Imagine how Simon feels. There's so much pressure. But what's remarkable here is that Jesus doesn't seem to understand that his reputation is on the line. Everything this woman does is inappropriate. Joel Green, in his commentary on Luke, he he just says, just letting her hair down in the setting would have been on par with appearing topless in public. Remember, they're not in a sexualized, like post-sexual revolution American culture. They're in a Jewish first century, very buttoned up type culture. He says, that would not have, it was on par with appearing topless in public. I don't know what I would do if a topless woman appeared at my house. It would be very difficult for me to let her rub my feet, though, right? (laughs) Kelsey's like. (laughs) But Jesus is happy to link his identity with hers and her identity with his. Jesus isn't embarrassed by her. He's not ashamed of us. You need to hear this just like I do, I bet. Jesus is not embarrassed about you he's happy to share his identity with you. He's happy to be near you. Those things that you've done, it's not that he's blind to them. It's not that he doesn't care about them. It's that he loves you. He genuinely wants to to have you at his table. So what does this woman do? It says, she stood behind him at his feet weeping. You may be like, what is the seating arrangement here? So they're not sitting around a circle table, right? They're not sitting in chairs. It says that they're reclining at a table. So picture almost like, like an a East Asian culture where there's a table very low to the ground and people are reclining. Um, they're, the table is here, so their faces are all at the table. Where does that leave their feet? They're kind of laying down. Their feet are behind them. And she goes behind Jesus and she begins weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears. And then it says she wiped them with her hair, and she kissed them and poured perfume on them. The heads of the table, right, they're all there literally with their heads at the table, and their feet are back. And Simon can't believe what he sees. When the Pharisee, who had invited him, saw this, he said to himself, notice he doesn't say this out loud. Guys, Jesus is pretty spectacular. <laughs> he's just like doing some mind reading. He knows what she's thinking. He knows what he's thinking and he's way more frustrated by him, right? (laughs) He can tell what's going on in her heart. Simon says to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him. If he were a prophet, he's reading your mind, bro. (laughs) He would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is. What kind of woman she is? She is a sinner. She's a sinner. The hoped-for messianic banquet was supposed to be a feast of rich food for all peoples, Isaiah said. A banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines, Isaiah 25, 6. Sounds pretty good. But the guest list had changed by the time Jesus shows up in Israel. By the time we get here, the sinner, the Gentile, the outsider, all peoples were no longer invited. A friend of tax collectors and sinners, a friend of prostitutes, We saw the way of hospitality, the table of Jesus. But this little story shows us and really challenges us on the who of hospitality. Who? Her? Jesus ate with sinners. He's at a, a meal and he tells the people there, he's like, don't invite the people who have it all together. Don't invite the people who can pay you back. Go to the highways and hedges. Go to the poor and the powerless. Compel them to come in. Don't invite the people who have honor that they can bestow on you. Instead, invite the people that have no honor and are dishonored. He said, I want you to share your identity with them. I want you to share your table with them. Their problem wasn't the party. It was the guest list. This is pretty challenging to me. So we saw the table of Jesus, the way of hospitality. Now we see the friends of Jesus and the who of hospitality. There's one more piece, though. Let's keep reading. Jesus says to Simon, I have something to tell you. You're like, oh, no, somebody's in trouble. (laughs) That's right. Okay, tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed 500, that's like two years' wages, and the other 50, that's like two months' wages. Neither of them had the money to repay him, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. He says, you've judged correctly, Jesus said. Can you imagine being put on um, to have to answer questions in front of Jesus? He's like, I, I just, is that right, is, right? Yes, yes, that's right. Then he turned towards the woman. This is one of my favorite deeper questions that Jesus asked. He looks at this woman, and he says, do you see this woman? Now, has Simon seen this woman? Oh, he's, he's seen this woman all right. He has noted this woman. And he's already formed a judgment about her and about anybody that she might be touching. Do you see this woman? Because Jesus sees this woman in a totally different way. I came into your house, but look, you did not give me any water, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. What he's introducing is basically the ancient practice of hospitality. Hospitality would look something like what Jesus is describing. And so it leaves us wondering, who is the host at this party? Simon isn't acting like the host. This prostitute is. She is the host of the party, welcoming Jesus in, showering him with gifts and perfume. And she's anointing him not only with expensive perfume, but with love and intimacy and compassion. That's what a host looks like. How can she be the host? What's, what's the mechanism that turns somebody like that into the host, into the the one who's actually practicing true hospitality? He says, therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. Now I, I love this about Jesus. Jesus knows that she has many sins. The way of Jesus is not to embrace sin. The way of Jesus is not to exclude sinners. Instead, the way of Jesus is to forgive sin and to forgive sinners. He doesn't look over it. He sees it and forgives. How? He says, her many sins have been forgiven. We'll come back to how that happened. But then he says, as her great love has shown. Slow down here, slow down. This is one of the most important things I want to say, so don't miss it. If I lost you, just come back, wake up. As her great love has shown. The order here is so important. Forgiveness, though he hasn't stated it yet, he's about to say your sins are forgiven. Forgiveness precedes her hospitality. Her experience of grace comes before she becomes the host. She gets forgiven. How do you know? Her great love is proving the fact that she's already been forgiven. This is the way... Of the new testament paul says welcome one another as god in christ has welcomed you he says look at how you've been treated look at how you have experienced the grace of god and then he says now go and do likewise if then i your lord and teacher have washed your feet you also ought to go wash one another's feet a new commandment i give to you that you love one another just as i have already loved you Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Do You see, this logic is all over the New Testament. The people who experience grace are compelled to go show grace. The people who experience forgiveness become the hosts. They become the ambassadors of hospitality, even if it's not your table, The table becomes a means by, any table can become a means by where you become the host. How? Why? Because of the experience of grace. The experience of God's grace leads to hospitality. Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests begin to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I love this. In Luke 5, Jesus shares a meal with Levi he says, I didn't come for people who have it all together. I came for sinners like this. I came for the sick. I'm the true physician who came for sick people. You remember Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus, he's a sinner. He's a tax collector. He throws a party. Jesus is invited. And then when Jesus shows up at his house, he says, truly, salvation has come to this place. Salvation has come on this house today. Jesus' concept of salvation, what I think it looks like, is to be embraced at a table with a family And to become the host where Jesus is welcomed. Hospitality is the mark of people who've been saved by grace. Hospitality is the mark of people who've been forgiven greatly. we become hosts all over the New Testament. This is the practice of early Christianity. Peter, he says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Paul, he says, share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. The Hebrews writer, don't forget to entertain strangers. For by doing so, some have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. John, he says, we ought to show hospitality to such men that we may work together for the truth. All the apostles seem to be writing about hospitality. What is hospitality? Hospitality in Greek is a combo word, philoxenia. It's the word philos. Have you ever heard of Philadelphia? It's the city of brotherly love. Philos is the word love. Have you ever heard of a xenophobe? A xenophobe is somebody who's afraid of somebody who's strange or someone who's foreign. The the xenia is somebody who's different. Philoxenia is then the love of the stranger. It's the love of the foreigner. It's the love of people who are an outsider. It's the love of people who are different. And over and over and over, Peter and Paul and John and the author of Hebrews and Jesus compel us. They say, practice love for strangers. Practice hospitality. This is the way of the church. This is actually a requirement for pastors and church leaders, like elders. Titus, he says in his list of what it looks like to be an elder or to be a shepherd, he says they have to practice hospitality. Paul says the same thing in 1 Timothy 3. It's an essential requirement of church leaders. You have to practice hospitality. And I know this isn't the way of church leaders in most churches. (laughs) I've I've served alongside elders for years and years and years and was never... I'm not even a stranger, but I was never invited to their homes or to their tables. But this is an essential practice of God's people, and it's an essential practice of God's leaders, and this is what changed the world. Tertullian, I mentioned him last week, he's one of those early African theologians. He says, our feast explains itself by its name. The Greeks call it agape. In, in the early church, they call it the agape feast. It's this big love feast. Now, love feast... Unfortunately, it sounds a little like 1970s New Age hippies. That's not what's happening here. <laughs> he, Tertullian, he says, "...whatever it costs, our outlay in the name of piety is gain. Whatever it costs, it's gain, since with the good things of the feast we benefit the needy. The participants, before reclining, they taste first of prayer to God. Much is eaten as satisfies the cravings of hunger, much is drunk as befits the chaste." And after, after this, he says, "...they bring in the lights, they stand forth and sing." Each one has a hymn to God, either from the Holy Scriptures or one from his own composing. Now, now this is up in the ante, right? Imagine if in home worship everybody was composing your own songs to sing to one another. But that's what the early church did. In the second century, that's what Tertullian's saying. He's like, You want to know what our assembly looks like? We invite poor people and we invite our neighbors, and we pray and we sing and we eat till we'll frull. We have great feasts and we're composing songs and we're t-. it's awesome. As the feast commences with prayer, so it closes in prayer. They practiced radical generosity to the poor. And this is really what transformed the early church. This is what transformed the Roman Empire. But they practiced radical generosity in a number of ways. In light of this past week, I was thinking of just two ways in particular. They practiced care for the unborn, and they practiced care for women. Both. The Didache is the fir- it's probably the earliest Christian document written outside of the New Testament. This is like early, early, first century document. The Didache says, there are two ways, the way of life and the way of death. The difference between these two ways is great. Therefore, do not murder a child by abortion or kill a newborn infant. Augustine, an African theologian, the most important one from the 4th century and 5th century, he talks about the, the value of human life, even if they appear deformed. He says, they may be peculiar in power or part or quality of nature, but he says, irrespective of the circumstances of their conception or their physical or mental con- condition, he says they should be preserved and protected and valued because he says God is sovereign and he made that child. This, this is the way of the early church. They, they would not practice abortion and they would collect the children who were left to the dogs in exposure. Wealth, wealthy families, they would look at children, perhaps they were the wrong gender, perhaps Um, they were just unwanted, perhaps they were deformed, and the Christians would go each night and they would take in these children and adopt them. They would embrace them. This is one reason that Christianity grew, because they had way more children than everybody else. But it wasn't just that they cared for children, they also cared for women in remarkable ways. Women were flocking to the Christian church because they knew that if if these men here, they loved their wives. They were chaste. They didn't have prostitutes on the side. They were faithful to one woman. They could be treated with dignity and respect. They could be fed. And if, if they were poor and couldn't afford anything, they could be welcomed to the table. And so women and children filled up the early churches. It was, it was like the, the lower, the people that nobody else wanted. So much so that there are emperors writing letters about what to do about this problem. There are governors writing, and they say, you know, we're, we're losing ground here. We're losing respect. For instance, some of you have heard me quote the Emperor Julian. He's, he says this. He says, we must pay special attention to this point, And by this means effect a cure. For when it came about that the poor were neglected and overlooked by our pagan priests. He didn't call them pagan. He just means, you know, the priest of Zeus or whatever. He says, then the impious Galileans, what he means is Christians, followers of Jesus, He says, they observed our poor, how they were being overlooked. And they devoted themselves to philanthropy. They gained ascendancy in the worst of deeds through the credit they win for such practices. He says, just as those who entice children with cake. And by throwing them to them two or three times, induce them to follow. And then when they're far away from their friends, they cast them on board a ship and sell them as slaves. He says, by the same method, these Christians, the Galileans... They begin with their so-called love feast, or hospitality, or service of tables, for they have many ways of carrying it out, and hence they call it by many names. And the result is, they have led very many into atheism. Atheism in this context means a rejection of the gods. How did Christianity overtake the Roman Empire in the days of Julian? He says they showed hospitality to the poor. They showed hospitality to children. He says... Why don't we try to do this to beat them at their own game? Of course, Julian's efforts were a total failure. They could not match the radical generosity of people who had experienced the generosity of God in Christ. All right, so what does this look like for us? What does this look like for us? Um, I think it looks like grace, community, and mission. It looks like a rhythm of life that practices the way of Jesus. Eating together. Grace, community, and mission. Part of community means embracing the limits of a, of a table and the limits of a home. Um, grace, one of the most loving things you can do is just simply sit down with a family and, and eat in the same place, at the same time, together. <laughs> that, that would be transformative. But grace will also include some other things. Chester, he says, hospitality leads to collateral damage, food will be spilled on your carpet. You'll be left with cleaning up. Your pantry will be decimated. But remember that God is welcoming you into his home through the blood of his son. The hospitality of God embodied in the table fellowship of Jesus is a celebration and sign of his grace and generosity. And we're to imitate that generosity. You see the grace. But community. Community is experienced through the table. He says many people love the idea of community in theory. Community sounds great. But what community looks like in real life not in an abstract sense, is people called together to sit around the table. Mission. May our tables provide food for the poor. May our spare bedrooms become Christ rooms. May our living rooms become respites for loneliness in our neighborhoods. May our lunch hour become filled with conversations of faith and life and gospel. Instead of Southern hospitality, I would love for our community to embrace scruffy hospitality where it doesn't have to all be put together because in the normal rhythms of everyday life, we know that God is working through them. When you look at life in the table through the liturgical lens, you see that the spirit of God and the grace of God is overflowing, even when it feels scruffy. All right, last piece. Next Sunday, we have in-home worship. Um, What have we done this, like three months? Two months? I, I would love to see us step even more into these practices of grace and community and mission, especially on these first Sundays. Grace would look like bringing a generous offering of food, of being prepared to receive and be inclusive with every guest that the Lord brings your way. Community looks like having time and a slowness to kind of sit and to listen and to ask the second and the third question. But mission One of the simple ways that we can practice mission with our tables is to just invite somebody next week. I I love in our group, um, about half the people who show up aren't actually partners in the Oikos family. They're invited, and they're, they're just friends of guests. If you have a friend or a neighbor who wants to share a meal and doesn't mind having a prayer and a few songs along with it, bring them along. This is a taste of community, and I think people can taste and see that the Lord is good. I just encourage you, really step into grace and community and mission next week. Let me close with this. This is the phrase that Jesus is accused of. There's so much more happening here. Um, I'm not going to go into all of it, but um, look at him. He, he came eating and drinking, and you said, here is a drunkard, and a, a glutton and a drunkard. What they're doing is is in quotation marks. It comes from the book of Deuteronomy. The parent who looks at their child, and he says, this is my stubborn and rebellious son. He won't obey our voice. He's a glutton and a drunkard. What do you do with this son, the rebellious son, the one who's wandering, who won't listen to authority? In the Jewish community of the time, all the men of the city, the next verse says, shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and all Israel shall hear and fear. Do you see the stakes of what they're calling Jesus? They're saying, this man deserves to die. It's not the party, it's the guest list that got Jesus killed. But Deuteronomy goes on, if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he's put to death, hang him on a tree. His body shall not remain all night on the tree but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. You see the, the crazy irony here? This is the point to Jesus moment. We're, when we're talking about hospitality and talking about the experience of grace and talking about forgiveness, we've been forgiven so we've become hosts. We've experienced grace so we've become hospitable. How does this happen? What happens at the cross? Paul says that even though he's sinless, He experienced the curse so that we could be broken free from it. Jesus dies the death of the rebellious son, even though he was innocent. He dies the death so that he can forgive much the woman who steps into his presence. The same passage that condemns a rebellious son declares that everyone who hangs on the tree is cursed. Jesus takes our place there, he becomes the substitute. Jesus says, I am. And now I am willing to share my identity with you. I am willing for you to share your identity with me, a sinner. Jesus dies the death of a rebellious son. He dies my death. He dies the death for sinners so that we might become hosts in the kingdom of God. Can you imagine what it would be like if a community this size started practicing radical hospitality just as Christ has welcomed us through the cursed one hanging on a tree? So might we welcome others? Would you stand? I just want to pray a of blessing over you. After I say amen, parents, could you go grab your kids, please? Um, Lord God, our Father, King of heaven and earth, we praise you, our gracious host. You have welcomed us through the blood of Christ. Empower us to welcome others into our homes and to our tables. Father, would you grow Oikos Church through the practice of hospitality? Father, would you grow us through the practice of hospitality? For your glory and kingdom, in Christ's name, amen.